Welcome to the flyfisher.co.za podcasts. I've been trolling around the internet looking at other podcasts and trying to find one on a rod builder who specializes in bamboo and I haven't found one so let's hope that this is the first bamboo rod builder interview podcast that uh, is on the internet. I'd like to welcome Stephen Dugmore to the podcast. Hi Mike, yeah, nice, to, nice to chat to you. Thank you for coming on the podcast, I hope we have an interesting time, I'm sure we will. Let's just get straight into it, how, how and when did you start building rods and, and why? I mean, not just any rods, you started off by building bamboo rods. Yeah, I've been fishing for a long time and I kind of grew up fishing with a fiberglass rod and then at the age of about six or seven, my father gave me a, a bamboo rod. It was a Walker Bampton. It was a really nice rod, but I had to learn some bad habits with the, the fiberglass rod. Yeah. One of which was to hook down flies that have been caught in the tree by inverting the rod and kind of gripping the branch with the reel and pulling it down <laughs> to get the fly. Yeah. So I did this after a couple of outings with a bamboo rod and of course it snapped because I was holding it right at the very tip of the tip, which is not something you want to do with bamboo. Very good. And especially not with an old kind of heavy reel. So yeah, that was the rod gone, which was very sad. Yeah. And I kind of put the rod away. I got another, another rod shortly thereafter. My dad very, very generously, you know, offered to replace the rod for me. So, I got a Lee Wolf, it wasn't actually, yeah, it's a Lee Wolf taper rod from Farlow's, which I also really enjoyed. But then I managed to break that one as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the problem with that rod is it actually was badly made, to tell you the truth. Yeah. And I was trying to cast a hell of a long line with probably a line that was overrated for the rod. Yeah. And I just felt this in the, in the butt and that was that. So... Uh, by that stage, I'd kind of moved on and graphite rods were around and I'd got like a cheap dye and I was fishing with that. But one day I was looking in, in the garage and I saw this um, old Walker Bampton lying there and I thought, Jeez, man, surely I can fix this thing, you know. Yeah. So I took it out and I had a look at it and scraped it down and, and then I thought, no, um, you know, I'd better do some research. Yeah? yeah. So I got on the internet and I started looking up bamboo rods and repairing bamboo rods and making bamboo rods and I got really stuck into it and after a while I realized that in fact it would probably be easier and more rewarding to actually make a whole new rod myself than to repair you know the broken one. Yeah quite mm-hmm. a project just to take on at the beginning eh? Yeah, it was. Uh, well, it was. I mean, to tell you the truth, I tried to fix the Walker Bampton by putting a fiberglass sleeve onto it, and yeah. and it kind of worked. But the rod wasn't, you know, what it was before. It really yeah. wasn't the same thing. So, yeah, no. But it it looked like a good project, but it was such a wonderful rod, and I so enjoyed fishing it that I thought, you know, why the hell not try to make a new one and see what see what it's like. So okay. that was that was the road. I mean, it's it's yeah. It's, if I'd known exactly what I was getting into, I might have kind of had second thoughts about it. <laughs> when about was this? That was about five six years ago now. Yeah. Okay. And then when you when you did crack the knot on deciding to try and fix this rod, I mean, you must be a handyman of note. You you must probably have a lot of tools and stuff lying around the shed. You you good with your hands? Yeah, no, I, I mean, as a kid, I used to spend all my time in the garage making things, you know, so I've, I've worked with wood and yeah, I've, I'm an architect, so I'm interested in how things are put together. 
So I've always done, yeah, I've always done things with my hands of all types of, you know, all types of materials, all types of construction, but I particularly enjoy wood. You know. Yeah. And in these six years that you've been building, how many rods do you think you've turned out? I'm into my sort of 50s now, somewhere around 57, 58, yeah. Okay, so about 10 a year. About 10 a year, yeah. And at the beginning, did you kind of build yourself one and throw one away, and then how did it go? Well, a lot of the a lot of the first part of the stuff was actually making the tools. You've got to actually put a lot of time and energy into making the tools in order to make the rods. So, you know, a good a good period of time was was spent actually doing that. And then I managed to you know get some tapers on the internet. And my first thing was that you know the bamboo rods are not really that readily available in South Africa. Yeah. So to actually get to try them out and see what they like and and so on is not easy. So I really decided I had to do something about understanding what I was getting involved with in terms of the design of the rods. So I took a range of tapers that are, are of different types and I started making those so that I could see what the different rods did and from that developed my own sort of likings for certain ones and certain parts of, of, of ones and yeah, so now I make the rods that, that I like. Yeah. When you say different tapers, is that each rod designer gets his own or builds his own tapers and then marks them down. And after reading a little bit here and there, I understand these tapers are exceptionally complex. Is there a lot of work that goes into them? Um, you know, there's just, you know, yes and no. You know, there are a lot of classic rods out there that have been measured and published, so the tapers are there. And there are generally sort of three or four different approaches to making rods, different types of tapers. Within those three or four different approaches, you can do a huge range of things as well, but they generally fall into sort of families. Where do you fish these rods? I mean, I know you live in the Western Cape, so you fish the small streams around Cape Town? Yeah, the small streams around Cape Town. When I'm lucky enough to go up to Rhodes area, I'll fish them there. Yeah. I fish them from a tube in, in still waters. Um, yeah, if you want to cast long distances and so on, then I would say bamboo rods not really the way to go. Or yeah. if you're going to be casting, you know, heavy lines for long periods of time, then I wouldn't necessarily use a bamboo rod. But so it's mainly they're mainly focused on on streams. Uh, yeah, but as I say, in still waters, I'll use them from the tube, and I'll use them from the edge if they, you know, if the fish are feeding in the margins, then yeah. you can have good fun with a bamboo rod there. Yeah. Now it touched on a, a a lighter than zero rod that you produced for him. But I wouldn't say that that's your, your key areas. What are you building? Probably threes to seven weights? Yeah, I think generally fours. You know, the, the demand for, for bamboo rods is, is generally around a four weight. Most people can't really afford to spend, you know, lots of money on more than one rod. So, mm-hmm. so a four weight is, is definitely the best all-rounder. Your discussions, and I've seen a few here and there, what is the difference between casting a bamboo rod, a glass rod, and a graphite rod? Is it? Is it the speed of the line being carried, or is it the, the actual presentation, or is it the timing and the, the oh, well, beautiful loops that a bamboo rod can throw? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that's very difficult to actually describe what it is, you know, about them that is special. But to me, it's it, there's, some, there's just something in the feel of the thing. It feels alive, you know. And I think, um, yeah, there's a, the, the actual weight of the rod, the self-weight of the rod gives it an accuracy. It's got an, a certain amount of momentum. You know, you cast the rod and the rod keeps moving because it's got a certain amount of weight. So that, you know, provides 
it's almost like you're letting the rod do the work. You initiate the casting stroke, and, and from there you're just actually following the rod to a certain extent. And if you initiate the, the stroke in the right direction, it's going to be, you know, present the fly absolutely accurately. Okay. But, yeah, I think it's that, it's that liveliness. You actually, there's, a, there's a feel that you've, you've got something in your hand that's alive. Whereas with you know, graphite and fiberglass, you, you're definitely fishing with something that feels more kind of hard or you know slightly more clinical. But it's yeah, it's really it's kind of a it's it's pretty difficult to describe, and it's it's sort of a bit of a Zen thing in a way. Yeah. No, you're quite right. I, I know exactly what you're saying about moving and being alive. Dan, how long does it take you to produce a rod from from beginning to end? I haven't timed it exactly, but I, I, my guess is that it takes somewhere between 45 and 60 hours. So, yeah, it's, a, it's you know, working a full day, week, every day, would you'd end up with one rod, but obviously with I can't rod. do that. So, yeah. yeah. The amount of effort that went into your initial production, I mean, you started saying you needed to make all the tools, and then, I mean, I've seen these little photographs of these little Vs that you put the, the bamboo into it before you start planning it. Can you explain what, what, what kind of tools you need and how they all work together? Yeah, the principle really is that you have to plane an equilateral triangle into a strip of bamboo, and that equilateral triangle needs to taper. It needs to be thin at one end and thick at the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, to plane the equilateral triangle is the big trick, and to do that, you have to have a planing form. And a planing form is essentially two long metal bars that have got a, a triangular, well, a, a beveled face filed into them at their own taper. Yeah. On, and the two bars are, are able to be separated and, and brought together at five-inch intervals with, you know, using bolts, push-pull bolts. Yeah. So you can adjust the taper, the, the, the spacing between the two bars, and that sets your taper for the rod, and you plane the bamboo down until it's flat with the, with the metal form. That's essentially the principle. The rest of the stuff is, is, is binding and gluing and, and heat treating and, and all of those kind of things, which, you know, there are a number of different ways of doing that. How did you make those two bars and, and where did you get the, that information off the internet? Yeah, I got the information off the internet. There's a, there's a very good site. A guy called Thomas Penrose has got a site for making forms. And I bought the steel bars. I, I tapped and, and pinned them. I, I threaded them. I, Filed the, the, the grooves by hand with a yeah. triangular file mounted in a wooden block. I mean, that was, it was blood and sweat and tears, I can tell you. <laughs> I can well imagine. It takes a very long time and it's hard work, yeah. Let's actually go through the process of building a rope. So you order your cane, where do you get that from? It's, the cane comes, originates in, in Tongkin in China. Um, I'm sure there are other, there's something like a thousand different species of cane mm-hmm. around the world. And I know that there are guys in Argentina who, who use cane locally there. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was a local cane here that could be used to just sort of require a certain amount of experimentation. But the, the, the recognized kind of standard for cane is Tonkin in China. That's the best stuff. So okay. can I, I ask you or, why? Why would Tonkin uh, be better than anything else? It's got a, it's got a very, very dense, what we call power fibers. The fibers in the outer layers of the, of the bamboo are very dense. And, and that's where your strength comes from. And there's something about the region that it grows in. They grow, it grows on slopey, mountain slopes that get quite a lot of water. Mm-hmm. So there's something about it, the, the way that it grows there, this particular species, that you get these really strong fibers in the, in the outer layers of the bamboo. Yeah. Okay. And you order that from, uh, obviously, a producer or, or supplier. I actually I order it. There are two suppliers in the states who, who. It's quite kind of weird in a way. I mean, it's not 
I suppose are not great for your carbon footprint because the bamboo is going from China to the States and then to South Africa. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd like to, I mean, ideally I'd like, love to be able to order it straight from, from China. But the, the, the problem is that the, the bamboo is not grown specifically for rods. So the guys who actually go and choose that bamboo are, are, are choosing pieces, you know, from, ah. from bamboo's stocks that are, I think they've actually set up some stuff now where they can get stuff specifically grown for them. But yeah, they need to choose the poles to get the straightest ones, the ones with the largest spacing between the nodes and the best fibers. Yeah. Okay, so what does that bamboo actually get used for other than rods? They use it for scaffolding. I've, I've seen scaffolding up huge buildings <laughs> at bamboo. Otherwise, yeah, it's just it's bamboo, for I think, for flooring. I don't, I don't think they necessarily use that quality stuff for flooring. But yeah. So the reason you're buying it from the States is actually there's somebody in the States who takes that shipment of, I don't know, five tons and says, I want those 30 or 40 poles. Yeah, he actually goes to China and chooses them and says, I want that pole, that pole, that pole, that pole. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, mm. so it lands in South Africa. You then get it. How much do you order at a time? I uh, order 10, 10 coolms. They're called coolms, and they're um, sort of 12 foot long. Yeah, so I order 10 at a time. Yeah. 10, 10 poles, okay. Mm. And then it arrives, and now you get your shipment. What do you do then? Well, the first thing is to is to decide whether you want to, you know, once you start the process of making the rod, you've got to decide what length rod you want, and mm-hmm. and to cut the cut the poles to the length that that you need, and you've got to choose, you know, to try and avoid the nodes as, you know, so you're cutting it so that you avoid as many nodes as possible. Yeah. And also trying to keep your nodes away from the tip of the rod because the nodes are, are, are they're different to the rest of the bamboo. They have a kind of a harder quality, but they're also more brittle. So Good. you want to keep them away from the tip. So you choose how to cut the pole. The next step would be to decide what kind of finish you want on the rod, whether you're going to flame the bamboo and, and get a sort of a brown-toned, flamed look to it, or whether mm-hmm. you're going to go for a blonde look. If you're going to flame it, then you flame it next. If the blonde, then you don't. Then you take off the ridge around the, the nodes. It's got a little welt almost that runs around the bamboo. You want to get that off. So you file that down, but being very careful not to, to file into the power fibers. The power fibers in the bamboo are, lie right on the outside of the bamboo. Okay. So you really want to keep, you know, work on the outside of the bamboo as little as possible. So you file down the ridge and then, and then split the pole into, into sections. Okay. There are a number of different ways of doing that. Uh, I, I use a, just a knife and a hammer. I've kind of got a technique now that really works quite well. Uh, I've seen some guys say that you, when you split the pole, you then keep your sides opposite each other. Is that true? Yeah. No, look, I mean, I, I, to tell you the truth, I don't think it actually makes a big difference at the end of the day. I did start out doing that, and I don't do it anymore. Yeah, I used to mark exactly where each strip was coming from within the pole. Mm-hmm. I don't buy that it necessarily does anything. You know, the pole is the pole, and if you end up with one strip next to each other or not, it's, you know, what's the difference really at the end of the day? There are, I mean, there are there are differences. You know, they've done tests, and there are minor differences in, you know, from one side of the comb to the other, depending on which side it was growing. You know, the north facing versus the south facing. Mm-hmm. But in a rod, at the end of the day. You know, the whole thing is combined as a composite. So unless you, in fact, it probably would make less sense to put the, you know, adjacent strips together because you might end up with a kind of a slightly weaker strip opposite the stronger one where in fact you want them interspersed. But yeah, I, I read it's, it's such a, it's such a minor, minor, minor issue. I think that I don't bother with that anymore. 
you, what you do want to do though is keep the you know keep the nodes at the right spacings and apart from each other and you know in the final rod to actually think carefully about those things. Those are much more important issues. Okay, yeah. speaking of the nodes, do you then put your nodes next to each other or do they get spaced apart from each other like um uh, the up or down? There are, three, there are three sort of different approaches to that. The one is to spiral the nodes, that no node is opposite another one. Then there's mm-hmm. a two by two by two spacing and a three by three spacing. Um, I use I use a combination of those, you know, on different rods. I'll uh, I mean I'll do a spiral rod or a two by two or a three by three, and it really just depends on 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 the length of the rod and how those nodes were spaced on the original cool mister, which is the best pattern. Okay, so now you've split the bamboo. Where do you take it from there? After splitting the bamboo, you've got to, you've got to sort out the inside of the node where there, you, there's a web that goes across the bamboo. You want to get rid of that. So there are a number of ways of doing that. I either plane it down or I sand it on a, on a belt sander. Just take it gently and make a slight dip in the, in the, in the, um, in the strip, taking away that web. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to straighten out the, the nodes and the strips. What I do now, for a while, I just used to heat them up gently with a heat gun, and then you straighten them in a vice, clamping them very gently. But now I actually soak the strips for quite a while in a, you know, just a trough of water, uh, four or five days, so they're actually completely soggy. Mm-hmm. And then you heat them up over a heat gun or a, an alcohol torch until they're just hot enough that you can feel they're starting to become flexible. Yeah. You can't heat them up too much. It's actually you've got to be careful about that. And then I just press them very gently in a in a vise in both two directions, so that you're straightening out the strip and and flattening the node, because you okay. want to get your strips as straight and flat as possible. When when but, you get those those poles, are are they relatively straight? Are they almost dead straight? They're pretty straight, but around the nodes, you split when you're splitting, you're following the grain of the power fibers, and at the at the nodes, the power fibers do all kinds of twists and kinks and bends. So you do end up with, and there will be broad sweeps between between nodes as well. Yeah, so they're straightish, but they need quite a lot of work. Yeah. So now you've straightened your strips. Where would you go from there? Once you've straightened them, you can start to rough plane them into you know into an equilateral triangle without a taper. So yeah, you set you can do that in a temporary form, or otherwise you can do it in your final form and just you know set the final form so that there's no taper to it, and you plane it with a with a block plane, a small hand block plane with a really 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 sharp blade. One of the big secrets is to is to make that blade incredibly sharp. Yeah, I saw on your website that you were saying that sharpening your tools is as much of a, a an art as making the rod itself. It's, yeah, it's a, and to actually be disciplined to keep them sharp. You know, you kind of you think, oh, should I'll just plane another strip? But you know, you actually need to keep them really sharp. Okay, so the next step from there would be. So once yeah, once you've got um, equilateral strips all of the same dimension, you you bind them up. I just bind them up by hand with cotton string, and then I and then I heat treat them. I've made a special oven. It's a um, sort of a convection oven operated by a heat gun. Yeah. air goes down one pipe and up another, and I hang the hang the strips in the in the one pipe so that they're exposed to hot air at a pretty even temperature from top to bottom. Yeah, so you heat heat treat them. What the heat treating does is that it changes the the cellular structure of the bamboo, forces out water, and closes the cells um, where the water would actually repenetrate. So yeah, it, it stiffens up the bamboo and it and it prevents water penetrating to the degree it would have before. Yeah. How long does the heat treating take you? 
Heat treating regimens vary. You know, there, there's again it's the, in the same sense that people debate whether you should heat treat and how you heat treat. There's there's a whole lot of debate about how long you should do it and what temperature and so on. There are arguments that you should heat treat it sort of 140 degrees Fahrenheit for 24 hours, and there are other people who say you heat treat it 340 degrees Fahrenheit for 15 minutes. What I do is 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 the latter. I, I heat treat for around seven and a half minutes, and then I flip the strips over, and another seven and a half minutes at at 350 degrees. Yeah. But there's also that you can also there's a sort of a smell that you can get once you can start to smell that it's almost like a slight toasting of the of the bamboo. Then you know that you you're in the ballpark. Other people hold a mirror over the end of the of the of their oven if they've got a heat gun for heat gun oven like mine. Yeah. And watch until there's no more moisture, you know, that the, that the mirror doesn't cloud over with moisture, and then they know that they're in the ballpark. So I do that sometimes as well. Okay. But I found that seven and a half minutes at 350 degrees and then flip it over, it works perfectly. All right. And how long after that do you then start doing your next stage? Well, you could start as soon as you've, you know, the, the bamboo's cooled down enough to handle. Yeah, I tend to heat treat quite a few strips in sequence. So I'll normally do that, you know, start at another day. But yeah, the next trip, the next thing to do is to is to play in the final taper, okay. which means you've got to obviously you've got to know what that final taper is. Uh, yeah. You know, I spend quite a lot of time designing rods, and and then set the forms to that taper, and then and then do the planing. Yeah. Okay, so the next step is then to put your taper into practice. Basically, plane the tapers into the strips. Uh, and during that process is the first time that you actually touch the outside of the bamboo and you just take off what's called the enamel, which is like that little skin that you get on the very, very outside of the, of the bamboo. So you scrape that off gently and then, uh, because you actually want a flat surface there, you know, that's got a slight curvature to it and you want a flat surface so that it beds properly in the planing form. And then you plane the final taper, you know, and then, and then it's a process of, of gluing up those final strips. All right. Well, can, can you just run us through, when you set up a taper, it's done by millimeters, obviously. How do you get that? Fractions taper? of millimeters, yeah. Fractions <laughs> of millimeters. How do you get that exactly right in your, uh, what did you call them earlier? The planing form. Okay. How do you yeah. get that right? I've got a, 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 it's what's called a depth dial indicator. And, and on that, on the point of that indicator is a 60 degree contact point. So I drop that 60-degree contact point into the groove in the planing form, and then I adjust with the push-pull bolts, watching the dial indicator, which reads, you know, to a thousandth of an inch. A lot of the a lot of the work that I do is kind of in inches and and so on, because you know the traditional classic rod tapers and things were were designed in inches. Yeah. So so rather than do the conversion all the time to to millimeters, I actually work quite a lot in inches. Yeah. So you're looking at a thousandth of an inch, which is 0.02 of a millimeter. Um, accuracy, yeah. So th- that dial indicator is a, is a very important tool. <laughs> yeah, I can well imagine. And you just drop the, the, the strips in there and then start planning from one end. You don't pick an, uh, di- well, you do pick a direction because you want to keep the nodes away from the tip. But once you've yeah. it, you drop them in and, and plan away. You, yeah, you plan the one side, flip it over and plan the other. You never plan the side with the enamel. So you, you're planning two sides. So you, you flip, 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 flip until you, you're getting it right down to the form. And then the final planing is done with a scraper and sandpaper sometimes so that you get a really smooth, clean, perfect finish. Yeah. Okay. Now you've got your strips all planned to the right size. You then glue them. Yeah, you just lay them out in the sequence, in the correct sequence. Slather them in glue and and then roll them up 
with a, you know, just using masking tape temporarily, and then you put it through a binder, which, which wraps them up with cotton in two directions so that you try to avoid twisting the rod, you know, while you're binding it. But you also want it like a really firm, um, a firm, firm clamp on it. And then from there, now you've glued the rod. I mean, we're still talking, this is a single, so you're building an eight foot rod. This is just one long strip, eight foot of bamboo. No, 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 yeah, no, you actually, you do this and you do it in as many sections as the rod's going to be. You know, if it's a three piece rod, you'll plane and put together three separate sections. You would have cut that right at the beginning. You know, you would have cut the three sections. Okay. Because so to work, to work with an eight foot long piece of bamboo, you know, you'd have to have a massive oven and your planning forms would have to be exceptionally long and so on. It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't make practical sense unless you, you're wanting to make a one piece rod. Yeah. So you'd cut the bamboo right at the beginning to the lengths that's just longer effectively than, than, than the final sections would be on the rod. Ah, so you can trim them to the right length. So now you've glued it all together, you're going to do your finishes now. So you're going to put on your guides, your reel seat, your grip, etc. Yeah, well first you've got to, once you've glued it, you've got to take off the, the binding cotton and so on and then, and then, and remove the excess glue, sand the blank down. You've got to straighten it because you, know, you try to straighten it as much as you can after glue up, but it's quite a tricky thing to do. You know, it's a sloppy mess and the, and the rod's always going to end up with a slight kink or slight twist or whatever. So you've got to straighten the blank. Which is you, you do again by gently heating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and once you've got it, once you've sanded it down, got it straight, and so on, then you can start to think about doing the finishing. Yeah, now the first thing to do with the finishing is is generally I put the um, is to cut the sections to the correct length. Now you know you get rid of those overlaps, mm-hmm. and you have to take into account then that you want the overall rod to be a certain length. Once assembled, so, you know, you've got to take into account the, the ferrules, the size of the ferrules of the joints, the size of the extra length that the tip top puts onto it and so on, you know, in that process. Once you've cut it to length, then I set the ferrules, which basically means you have to turn the rod ends so that the ferrule fits snugly onto each end, you know, the male and the female. Yeah, and then once the, and then you, you've got to dress the ferrules as well. You need to clean them out so that they make a good bond. You, you crown the ferrule tabs, which is the part that's kind of gets bound onto the rod, because you want to make the stresses that come through the, the ferrule evenly distribute themselves yeah. into the ferrule rather than, than come over a, a, a sort of a straight line, which would then put a crack in your, in your thread wrapping. So there's quite a, and then there's also the, the ferrules need to be, be, the male part of the ferrule needs to be very, very, very gently sanded so that it makes a really snug fit into the female. So, okay. yeah, there's quite a lot of work that's involved in ferrule, you know, fitting ferrules, yeah. Now, one of the things that you mentioned on your website is that you find the spine on the blank. But if you've built them in, in three different sections in a three-piece rod, how do you mm. find that spine? Is it per section? Yeah, you find the spine per section. And, it, and there are different ways of doing it. The one is to hold it in one end and roll it on a on – a, put, I put the ferrules on first mm-hmm. because it, it makes a, a good surface to roll. And then you roll the – they roll the ferrule along a countertop or something like that, holding, supporting the, the strip with one hand and pushing down with the other in the middle. And you can feel where it does a kick. Otherwise, that, as good a way and some ways better is to just cantilever the strip over a table, hold it firmly and just pull the tip straight down and watch the way it bounces, you know, as it comes back up again. If oh, it bounces yes. in a loop, then you know that you've got it off the spline. But the funny thing about the spline is they're kind of, the debates about, where you should actually put this blind on the rod. There's some people who say you should put it in line with the guides, either yeah. on the back of the rod or, you know, exactly under the, the guide. Yeah. 
But then I've read elsewhere that people say, well, you shouldn't do that because, you know, if there's a slight movement off that while you're casting, it's going to make the rod twist. Mm-hmm. You actually need to put the spline on the side so that it's not, you know, the, the strength is not going to <laughs> make it deviate in the straight tracking. So, yeah, I'm not sure. At the end of the day, I don't actually know. I think that, you know, I, put, I tend to put the spline behind the guides. I read one of the top rod builders say that they don't build on the spline anymore. They just, their, their technology is good enough not to worry about it, but they are talking about graphite. No, no I think, I mean, my... You know, the, the, the spline's not, it's not distinctive. You know, there are often times when you can't really tell where it is, and then I don't think it is really an issue. Mm-hmm. The other thing as well is that the ferrules, just to, to fit a ferrule perfectly straight onto a, onto a rod is not an easy thing as well. So sometimes it actually makes more sense to, you know, choose the best alignment through the ferrule down the rod. Rather uh, than with the spline, you know. Rather keeping I mean, the rod. All very straight. well having the spline, exactly. All very well having the, the right spline, and you've actually got the tip, you know, slightly skewed. <laughs> True. Then, do you yeah. build your the rest of the components yourself? I mean, the 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 handle, the grip, and the reel seat. Yeah, generally I do. Um, I like the, the 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 grip that Steve Borshoff designed for for Ed for mm-hmm. particularly for stream rods. So I make those up completely. Yeah. If somebody wants a more traditional look, and I have, you know, and I do occasionally do that as well, I also quite like it, then I'll either make up the real seat or buy one. If you want a really kind of fancy real seat, then obviously the thing to do is to purchase it from the guys who, who make that top quality stuff. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's really, it's a really a client choice that, yeah. You, you make your own rod tubes and stuff to that effect? No, I order the rod tubes. I actually want to try and find somebody who can make them up for me here. Yeah. yeah. It's not an easy thing to make up a, you know, the caps on the rod tube are the tricky bit. All right, so would that then be your complete rod? Yeah, then it obviously it comes with a rod bag as well, a feral plug to, you know, to put in the female end when the rod's disassembled so that you keep grit and so on out of the feral. Yeah. There's obviously the wrapping and the guides and so on that we haven't talked about. You know, there are obviously options in terms of colors and and so on mm-hmm. and type, types of guides and Comes with a bag, comes with a tube, uh, ferrule plug, and obviously there's a choice of whether you want a spare tip or not. I don't make any of the rods for myself with a spare tip because I know I can always remake them if I need to. But also my experience is I've broken those those two rods as a kid, but other than that, I've actually haven't broken any bamboo rods, so they're actually quite strong. I don't think you have to have two tips. It's more tradition that rods were made with two tips because in those days there weren't a lot of rods around, and if you did break your tip, that was going to be you know a serious issue. Let's talk about your little company or business that you have going. If somebody was to buy a rod from you or ask you to build a rod for them, what would you say and how would you approach it? Normally, I try to find out, obviously, what kind of fishing they're going to use it for predominantly uh, and what sort of you know, line, weight or length they would be looking for. And then unless they've got a particular idea about, you know, what they like in a rod, I ask them what other rods they use, what other rods they like. I don't necessarily always know you know, exactly what the rods they, they like or use are like because I haven't casted all of them. Yeah. But, I, you know, I've casted a lot of rods and um, and so I can get a sense of what they like. But most times guys come to me and they say, look, you know, I want to, I want to be able to fish in, in roads when I go there. I want to fish in the Western Cape when I go there and, you know, maybe a couple of streams in Pumalanga and, and, then, and then I'll, you know, recommend a rod that's more of an all-rounder that can do all of those things. Mm-hmm. And I have to make rods that, you know, that I like. If someone came to me and said, look, I really want this particular taper, can you do it? I'll do it. You know, that's, I don't have any problem with that. But if somebody comes to me and says, you know, I'm looking for a rod, I'm going to only design a, 
and make them a rod that I would like myself. So if I said to you I'd like a, a Payne 198, about a three weight, you'd be able to go research that and come back. To I could make that. you. A, I could make you. The Payne 198 taper is, is is readily available. So yeah, it would be that would be no problem. It would just just be a process of making it. You know, I could get the taper and make it. Problem. Yeah. Speaking of that, what do you then charge your customers for for a rod that you're building? It depends to a certain degree on what kind of finishes they're looking for. You know, if you're looking for for really fancy real seat and so on, then I need to charge more. But my rods go for around eight thousand rand for a for a, a two piece rod with with a spare tip. I'm not pressing into you. A lot of that is your time, effort, and skills, etc. Most of it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't make money out of it. I can't make a living out of it. You know. No. So, yeah. So it's not. It's it's kind of a. <laughs> I do it mainly because it's, I enjoy making the rods, and I've got so many now of my own that I can't fish them all. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so I might as well sell them, and I'm not going to sell them for nothing. Yeah. Right now, it it mentioned that triple zero in the podcast that I did with him. Let's yes. talk about it because this is something weird and wonderful. Well, in some ways, it's not that weird and wonderful. I think it's, you know, it's basically led, uh, Leonard made a, a rod called the Baby Catskill, which was the lightest rod ever made. And in some ways, it probably still is the lightest rod that you can go to. It actually is, is a bit of a noodle, you know, it's, a, it's actually too light in some ways. You've actually got to be a pretty experienced caster to, to be able to fish it comfortably. And Ed asked me, you know, he's, he's always had this thing about whisper rods and so on, and he really wanted a Leonard Baby Catskill. So, you know, I said I would make him one, and I had a look at it, and I decided that I actually didn't particularly like the Leonard Baby Catskill taper as is. I know that, you know, with the kind of fishing that we do, and I know that with Ed does, you want to be able to cast a, you know, a nymph every now and again as well. And... We, we want to be able to have a rod that's a little bit quicker and crisper for, for dry fly fishing. So I, I started with Leonard's baby catskill and I just tweaked it around a bit. I made the, the butt and the midsection a little bit stiffer and I lightened the tip a little bit in some places and not in others. You know, it's, it's rated as a two weight, the Leonard baby catskill. Mm-hmm. That's what the, that's what the taper says it is. It's a one stroke two weight. But the reason for that, I think, is that, you know, when, when Leonard made it, there was no, there were no other lines. A two-weight was the lightest line you could get. And I think that his rod, he probably set out to make the lightest rod that can possibly be made. Yeah. And I think that it would have been completely overlined with a, with a two-weight, in fact, because the rod actually casts a one-weight easily and will go down to, you know, a triple naught, in fact. Yeah. Okay, well, we, we, this is going to be a long podcast to start with, but we need to wrap it up because I try to keep them in 30 minutes. This one's going to go yeah. into about 40. So let's go into the quick fire favorites. Favorite dry fly? The favorite dry fly, I think, is probably, I love Tony Biggs's rab, mm-hmm. especially the ones tied by Tony Biggs. <laughs> but um, I would probably, you know, if, if I have to approach a river and just fish, and I don't know what's going on or whatever, I'd probably tie on a, a paraloop mayfly. Okay, favorite yeah. nymph? Favorite nymph has got to be, I guess, the you know a pheasant tail nymph, pheasant tail nymph, or or a version of a, a gold rapazia. Favorite a rod? No, it is, it's too difficult because yeah, I've got a variety of rods and I just you know I can't choose between them. Sometimes I have to pick one up and go. Uh, favorite gizmo or gadget? I think my favorite tool is probably my Lee Nielsen scraper plane, which is okay. a beautifully made. Movie, author, books? Sure. I'm also I like to read a lot. I'm not I don't read a lot of fishing stuff. But I like to read a lot, so it's very it's it's tricky to to choose an author or fan. Uh, 
all expenses paid trip anywhere in the world? I would probably, I'd like to explore South America. If, if it was all expenses paid, I'm sure I could choose a more expensive place to go, but <laughs> I'd quite like to, like to spend some time in, in Chile and Patagonia, yeah. Fishing the streams and the rivers or? Fishing or? the streams, hiking in the mountains, yeah, visiting the cities a whole lot, yeah. Well, we really thank you for your time. It's been a great podcast. I appreciate oh, it. Nice to chat to you, yeah. They say you know life is given But I tell you now it's all within that river You find yourself in the heart of heaven Close off so long you could swim forever Place to rest your grace, the silver sands lead the way. The water's golden stories told. Free clouds, sapphire summer days. Fun way to spend your day. Take yourself, be right away. Drive six hours and walk five days. Hey, hey, hey.